The Athletic. Would you like to reach hundreds of thousands of Athletic subscribers? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Our lot are great. They're intelligent. They have demonstrably long attention spans for all of those long reads. And that means they're almost certainly the ABC ones you're looking for. Imagine your brand front and centre on the Totally Football Show, or Talk of the Devils, or Football Clichés. You can advertise with us now. Our highly skilled and effortlessly charming commercial team are waiting to hear from you, whether you want a single ad on View From The Lane or full title sponsorship on our Women's World Cup show. We've got something for everyone. Contact partnerships at theathletic.com. That's partnerships at theathletic.com. If you're going to have Antonio Conte as manager, you should give him the players that he needs to succeed. What's the point in Antonio Conte being manager of Tottenham if you're not, if like the recruitment strategy is not going to be aligned with what Conte needs on the pitch? Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the View from the Lane. It is the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from the Athletic. Uh, joining me on today's episode, flying solo. Uh, is the Athletics' Jack Pitt-Brook. Yeah, the mood around the club has been lifted by two successive wins, but my personal mood has been rather deflated. The hat is no longer quite on the side of my head with the latest news from the transfer market. Um, let's get straight into the fact that a move that Spurs appear to have been working on for the entire month, that of Pedro Porro, the right back and right wing back of Sporting Lisbon, has, at the last minute, fallen through. Good morning, Jack. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, thanks, Danny. How, how are you? I was grand. I really was very grand until I woke up this morning to do, see at the last minute that Pedro Porro, who'd kissed the badge after the Portuguese League Cup final, waved goodbye to the fans, is not on his way to Tottenham. Um, I am bewildered and slightly angry, but not with Porro and not with Sporting necessarily, but with Spurs. First of all, what do you know about this? Well, it's been really, really difficult. So Poro has been Tottenham's big priority, obviously, this window. Um, they've been working very, very hard on the deal for uh, certainly in an intense way for the last week or so, let's say. Uh, you know, Poro's representatives have been out in Lisbon for over a week trying to get this all agreed between Tottenham and Sporting. And it's been, you know, it's been it's been tough. You know, it's been over the last, even since, let's say, I think about Thursday, there have been various different stages where it's looked on or off or on or off or on. And um, obviously David Ornstein wrote the story uh, which we ran this morning on The Athletic. It's currently it's currently Monday morning. You know, who knows what will happen between now and the end of the window. But David wrote the story uh, this morning saying that the deal was off. Um, I know that fans are really uh, annoyed about this because obviously Poro is a really good player and would bring a lot to Spurs. Uh, and also because he has this clause. But uh, you know, I've got messages this morning saying, why don't Tottenham just pay the clause? That clause, you know, 45 million euros, that would sign the player. But that's never really been the issue over the last few days. So Tottenham have been, I think Tottenham have been happy to pay the clause money. But sometimes clauses are not as simple as they look. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of when Arsenal tried to sign Luis Suarez from Liverpool in 2014. And, you know, they off, uh, Suarez had a clause, Arsenal paid what they thought was the money for the clause, and then the deal still didn't end up happening. So sometimes the selling club still has the capacity for a bit of wiggle room, the capacity to be difficult, to slow things down. And 
my sense is that's what's happened. You know, I, I gather that Sporting have moved the goalposts a lot. Sporting obviously don't want to sell him. You know, he's one basically their best player. La, you know, last summer they ended up well, they sold what they sold Nuno Mendes to PSG. They sold Palinia to Fulham. They sold um, Geddes to Wolves. Uh, Ruben Amarim is trying to build a really good team, and he doesn't want to keep selling his best players. He doesn't certainly doesn't want to sell his best player in January. So Sporting have been digging their heels in, and they've made it. I think I, th- I think that to be honest, they've made it as difficult as possible. Porro is obviously very very pissed off about this because he wants to come to Tottenham, uh, and at the moment it looks like there's no no positive resolution is in sight. All right, let me ask you some questions about this then, Jack, if I may. Um, what you stated there are the bald facts. And, of course, we both stand to look a little bit muggy. People listening out, jogging, walking their dogs, listening to this podcast will say, hang on, well, that transfer went through. Well, we'll see um, about that. It may it may well be the case. But at the moment, it is off, which takes me um, to my frustration. Now, look, you and I, particularly yourself, um, have tried to be fair about Enoch and Daniel Levy, um, try to take a, a widescreen view of what he has and hasn't done in his long, long tenure at Spurs. I must say the transfer dealing, and maybe this is true of all fans, but I'm going to talk about Tottenham, sometimes does really frustrate me. The Porro deal, for instance, it's been so public. It has been so out there that if they don't get it over the line, quite apart from the footballing aspect of it, it's just embarrassing. English Premier League clubs who want players from other teams go and get them. You know, they go and get them. They just they just stand there in front of the, the selling club um, with a metaphorical checkbook, waving it like loads of money from the 1980s um, and saying, well, we're going to have him. Other clubs get these things done, you know. I mean, I, I see this morning, Weston McKenney, a player who Spurs have kept an eye on, is on his way to Leeds for a medical. That's Leeds, everybody. The, the fact that, it, that they, see, they seem to have spent so much energy on this and time over the last 30, 29 days, presumably before that as well, if it doesn't go across the line, it looks embarrassing and it looks small time. And worse, what is Conte going to make of it? Yeah, so I, it's one of those things where in isolation, and I don't blame Tottenham for this deal not happening because I do think Tottenham have been trying very hard for it to happen. And I do think that Sporting have repeatedly moved the goalposts and made it very, very, very difficult for Tottenham. That said, why are these climactic talks which have been running over the last few days, why are they happening on the last weekend of January? You know, why could they not have happened at the start of January? You know, Tottenham, it's not like, it's not like Tottenham came into this window and then at the start of the window, they realise, hold on a second, we need a right wing back. You know, they've needed a right wing back for years, for literally for years. Like, you could, you know, they've been in bad shape in that position since they since they sold Kieran Trippier to Atletico Madrid in 2019. They've been in bad shape in that position since they sold Kyle Walker to Manchester City in 2017. It's 2023. It's January 2023. And they still haven't got a proper player in that position. Uh, just to make a note, that if, if the thing goes through, if Porro does go through at 40 million, if you add to that Jed Spence, if you add to that... Uh, Emerson Royal, if you add to that Mad Doherty, Spurs have spent 100 million euros trying to replace Kyle Walker Peters, effectively, haven't they? Yeah. And also, like, as well as it being, you know, a long standing issue in this position, they've had Antonio Conte as manager for 14 months. Conte plays a wing back system. He needs really good wing backs. And they have repeatedly failed to deliver for Antonio Conte the players that he needs in that position. Obviously, in January 2022, so one year ago, they tried to get a double Traore and that obviously that didn't happen in the end and that that was really their big idea before in that window before Kulisewski and Bentenker at the end last summer obviously the only right 
right-sided player they signed in the end was Jed Spence, so we all know what, what's happened there. And now this is, this looks like, and again, Monday morning, anything can happen between now and tomorrow night, it looks like it's going to be a third consecutive window in which they have failed to deliver Antonio Conte what he needs. I have been criticised a fair bit, and this podcast has been criticised as well, for being too soft on Daniel Levy, but to me this is such an obvious example of the, you know, the the downside of the Levy approach because they they haven't got the players who they need in this position. And really, it kind of shines a light on the bigger issue here, which is that if you're going to have Antonio Conte as manager, you should give him the players that he needs to succeed. What's the point in Antonio Conte being manager of Tottenham if you're not, if like the recruitment strategy is not going to be aligned with what Conte needs on the pitch? I mean, we are back to then to the carousel, of course, that since he hasn't committed, why would you spend it? But, but Porro appears, Porro appears to be a pretty good player in his position. And, you know, we we know that, that when people can be asking 100 million for centre-backs these days, you know, the 40 million is is probably steep. But, you know, that, that's... I don't think 40, I, I don't think 45 million euros for Porro is steep. I think Porro is one of the best players in the Portuguese league. I think he's one of the best players in his position in Europe. I think if he comes to Tot- if, he, if, if he comes to Tottenham, I think he'll be, uh, you know, he'll be one of the best players in that Explain role. Explain to me the then why, why 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 Luis Enrique in the recent World Cup preferred a clapped out version of Aspilicueta in the squad. He didn't even make a Spanish squad. Well, inter- come on, Danny. International football is different. Like international football, like international football is full of players. I mean, you could say the same thing about Trent Alexander-Arnold. You know, international football is full of players who are not necessarily the best at their role playing for their country because the man, the, you know, the international manager likes them and they fit into the system. Okay, uh, I I hear you. I'm I'm in an accepting mood, so I'll I'll, I'll let that go. If I could say one more thing on Poro, it's that it looks at the moment like he's going to join the long list of very very good players who Tottenham have tried to sign at the end of the window. And it's been too little, too late. Well, you know, well, let's Jean start Martinho, with Jack Grealish. Grealish. Yeah, Jack Grealish, João Moutinho, Bruno Fernandes, Paulo Dybala, Wilfred Zaha. I'm sure Sporting will be saying to Poro right now, you know, please don't go, please don't go. We'll give you a bit more money now, maybe, if you want. We'll sell you in the summer. And who knows, maybe in the summer he'll go to Tottenham. Or maybe in the summer he'll go somewhere else. Maybe he'll go to, I don't know, any other, any, any other big team in Europe who's looking... Who's looking for him then? And I think what this what this shows is that sometimes the you know the Daniel Levy model of doing your deals right at the end of the window can be very successful. And obviously last summer, Paratici managed to land two brilliant players at the end of the window. For, frankly, for incredible deals. You know, Benton Co was cheap. Kulisevsky's on a loan plus a cheap option. Um, so that you know that was an example of the Tottenham approach working. But frankly, I think it it works less often than it doesn't work. And uh, if if this deal doesn't turn around and if they don't manage to land Poro between now and Tuesday evening, then I think this is going to go down as a big failure uh, for... Uh, it's a big strategic failure, basically, to have failed to land a, a good player in this position yet again. So this morning, after I was teeth grinding about the Poro deal, I was thinking about Spurs' transfer transfer policy in general. You know, I get it. Some of it's financial. You're spreading the costs. Romero comes in. It's a loan which all, you know, but it would have been a thing to sign. Kulusevsky has been on loan for a year and a half now and still hasn't got to the end of his loan contract. But what I wanted to talk about, Jack, is the other direction, the outgoings from the club. Because, I mean, Spurs are, whether they like it or not, a gigantic club. They are the ninth richest club in terms of revenue in the world. The latest figures show that. They have a global fan base, all those things. They're in the most glamorous league in, in Europe and they're in the Champions League as we speak. And yet their outgoing transfer business 
is extraordinary. They struggle to get any kind of substantial fee for any player that leaves the club. Um, here's the one. I mean, th- this is shocking. I mean, I'll put this to you. Since Kyle Walker, who you mentioned earlier on, left the club for a £50 million pounds, uh, to Manchester City, Spurs have got substantial fees for just two footballers. Kieran Trippier, who they may have undervalued when they sold him to Atletico Madrid, and Steven Bergvine, um, who Ajax splashed out for more recently. But they were both transfers 120 million, 125, 26 million. These are not, by European standards, big transfers. Meanwhile, all the players Spurs have played any significant amount of money for, the, the Celsos, the Indombales, are out on to, you know on this, into the second year of loan deals. So they're struggling to get players in because, for some reason, they aren't prepared to splash the necessary amounts of cash. And we understand that there's the stadium and all the rest of it. But they're also not getting players off their books very successfully either. And by successfully, I mean, you know, getting decent fees for them. Yeah, I think, I mean, Spurs have not been good sellers for quite a while, really. That I think, again, this kind of comes down to Daniel Levy, which is that, it was once described to me that Daniel Levy is a brilliant, brilliant negotiator when he has the leverage. When Daniel Levy holds all the cards, where basically when he has a player that somebody else desperately wants and someone who with money desperately wants, he is fantastic at getting the best possible deal. Dimitar Berbatov to Manchester United, Carl Walker to Manchester City, Gareth Bale to Real Madrid for a world record fee. In those situations, I think his approach is very good. I think Daniel Levy is less good at selling players at the right time. In fact, I think Tottenham have been very, very bad at selling players at the right time over the last five years. And I think that one, this has really been one of, you know, one of Spurs' big strategic problems over the last, let's say, five, six years has been they haven't sold players. They haven't really sold players at all. They've hung on to players for too long and they've seen their values decrease. And then they wonder why they've got a bunch of old grumpy players who don't want to be there anymore who they can't shift. You know, this goes all the way back to so summer of 2017, the summer that they sold Carl Walker to, to City. They nearly sold Danny Rose to Chelsea for 55 million quid. They didn't do it. Now, that, you know, how how much... I, Danny Rose is understandably a very popular player with Spurs fans, but it's I don't think he really contributed that much between that point, summer 2017, and then the end of his time at Spurs to make it, that money not worth taking. I mean, frankly, that this was after the knee surgery that he'd had in January 2017. Deli Alley, someone we talked a lot about in this podcast, Mauricio Pochino wanted Daniel Levy to sell Deli Alley years before everyone else twigged that he was in decline. I think it goes all the way back to summer 2017. Pochettino wanted Levy to wanted Levy to to sell Deli Ali. Toby Alderweireld, twenty eighteen. Toby Alderweireld. I'm sure Pochettino would have loved to sell Toby to Manchester United. Didn't happen. Although I think in that case maybe it's not so much on Levy. Maybe it's that Ed Woodward didn't really back Mourinho, who's wanted Toby there. Eric, you know, Man United wanted Eric Dyer. Lucas Napoli offered forty million for Lucas Moore in twenty nineteen, and Daniel Levy wouldn't do it. So there's been so many examples of players that Tottenham should have sold and they hung on to for too long. And I think that's, maybe it's to do with value. I think it's probably in part to do with valuation. I think it's also probably part to do with ego and the sense that Tottenham don't want, they don't want to be a selling club. They want to be seen to be a big club. Uh, and that means not getting pushed around on your play, on, on players and keeping hold of your best players. But to be honest, I think there's certainly been times in the last few years where I've thought that Spurs would be better off trying to be a clever selling club. Because you can, you know, Atletico Madrid are a selling club. And look at the success they've had. Borussia Dortmund, I mean, they haven't actually won anything, but they are a selling club and it has allowed them a level of both consistency and profitability over the years. Whereas I feel like Tottenham are kind of caught between 
they don't want to be a selling club, but they're not going to be an apex predator club either because they don't have enough money. And so that means they're caught in this like sort of between two stools of ha- buy, you know, they buy decent young players or they buy, you know, they buy some good players, but they hang on to them for, for so long. In defence of Daniel Levy, all those players you mentioned, they did didn't end up playing in the Champions League final, and so he kept the team together. And they and they did, the but League final. if Tottenham. I mean, look, we, we've done this a million times, but if Tottenham had sold, if Tottenham had sold all the players that Pochettino had wanted them to sell in 2017 and 2018 and 2019, then I don't know if they would have got to the Champions League final uh, in 2019. Probably not. But I can guarantee that they wouldn't have gone off a cliff in the league in 2018-19. And I'm pretty sure that Pochettino wouldn't have got sacked in November 2019 either because I think the team would have been refreshed uh, they would have been able to get in new players. They would have been able to m- maintain the energy because that's what happened with the Pochino is that they lost because they hung on to the play onto the same players for so long. The energy drained away. You know, the, the as somebody put it to me once, the water in the swimming pool went stale. You've got to refresh the water in your swimming pool, and they didn't do it. And if they had sold all those players and then bought new ones, like younger ones and hungrier ones, who are as hungry as the players that Pochino inherited for the first time in 2014. Then I think they would have, you know, they would they would have finished the last decade stronger. And Poch- who knows, Pochettino might even still be there. I don't know. Which is an incredibly long way of saying I agree with you, Danny. Tottenham are bad at selling players. Yeah, I noticed that um, uh, Brian Hill, even as I speak, um, is going back to is going to Seville uh, on loan, of course, because Spurs never sell any players, as we just established. Um, he's gone. He's going to Seville for the rest of the season, um, and of course, you know, when they brought. Brought in Dan Juma, somebody had to go. I guess uh, just to have, have the squad at a manageable size. If you're going to buy a really, really, a sort of a talented but unready, quite physically weak, uh, young attacking creative mi- midfielder, why would you then appoint Antonio? Like, and then if you appoint Antonio Conte as coach, it's not going to work. You know, other coaches might have given Brian Hill more time, but obviously Conte's got no real interest in him. And so um, off he goes on loan. So again, it's an example where the recruitment policy and the managerial appointment policy are clearly at odds with one another. But then, you know, this is something we've been talking about for a long time. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of the Athletic Football Podcast. It's the final week of January and uh, that sound you can hear is clubs frantically trying to get deals over the line before the deadline closes on Tuesday night. Uh, Myself, David Ornstein, Adam Crafton and our raft of club experts will be all across the biggest moves this week and we'll discuss the fallout when the window shuts. So just search for the Athletic Football Podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your pods. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. With me today is Jack Pitbrook from The Athletic. And that piece of music is, of course, the actual piece of music to which Spurs come out for the second half after months of searching for it because it turns out it was specially re- recorded for the club back in the day. Um, Pete Abbott, the stadium announcer, who was our guest on the last version of The View from the Lane, um, has brought us that recording of it um, so that uh, we have the right run-out music, the exact right version uh, for the second half of our of our podcasts, the, the the game at Preston was that rarest of things, Jack. A relatively easy away game in the FA Cup against you know, opponents from one league down. I say it was easy. There were plenty of talking points from it because in the first half, once again, Spurs struggled to get to grips. But I think in the second half, they had the game pretty much in in their control. Well, yeah. I mean, look, Spurs. What well, Spurs got knocked out of the FA Cup last season by Middlesbrough, didn't they? So it's um, these games are no are no gimme, particularly given how badly Spurs have been playing recently. So I, I was pretty. I I thought Spurs were good. I thought they actually really continued in the same vein that they that they did at, at Craven Cottage on Monday night. Obviously, you know, Preston are not as good as Fulham, but they're still a pretty tough opponent. And I thought Tottenham defended really well. Their shape was good. They didn't really give up that many big chances. They, you know, and then they they took their they took their chance at the other end of the pitch. What this game really showed 
is that, you know, a lot of us have spent a lot of energy and time over the last season thinking, why are Spurs so bad? Why are they so bad this year? They used to be good last year, but now they're bad. And it's like, there's so many theories and everything. And, you know, we've I've written more than enough pieces trying to figure out why it is. A lot of it comes down to the fact that last season, Son scored all his chances, and this year hasn't been scoring at all. And, you know, in a team which doesn't create a huge amount of chances, like, it's not like Tottenham are sort of Man City or Liverpool in how they play. If your cutting edge suddenly goes blunt, then you're going to struggle to win games. Whereas, Saturday was a reminder that if Son starts scoring goals again, then everything everything starts to work. You know, every, suddenly this team which plays this kind of weirdly minimalistic style of football, which doesn't have much of the possession or doesn't have create many chances, but then if your formerly world-class striker is good again instead of bad then it works. So, you know, sometimes football's not as complicated as it looks. Well, and they were two lovely takes. I mean, uh, one almost, um, one hesitates to say it, memory lane when he got the ball with the inside of his right foot and curled them, oh, yeah. curled them around the goalkeeper. That was such a classic, a classic Son finish, you know, that the like the angle of it, the way he opens his body, the way he kind of, He's he's such a kind of he's such an elegant finisher, Son. As one of the many, as well as being incredibly quick and athletic and powerful, he's got an amazingly. He just looks so natural the way he kind of opens his body and finds the corner of the net. Uh, I love watching him when he's like that. And I, frankly, he hasn't looked. He hasn't. I mean, apart from what, that Le- that Leicester game where obviously he came on and scored a hat trick, he hasn't looked like that for a long time. So it was uh, yeah, it was good to watch him. And also his other goal was was I thought that was a very clever finish as well. The way that he kind of he took a little bit more time than some players would have done and then put it in the other corner. Um, absolutely. Uh, what did you make of his reaction when he was substituted and appeared to be in tears on the side of the pitch? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's always difficult reading the body language of people you don't really know uh, when they don't know there's a camera on them. That said, I'm going to do it anyway and say, I just wonder if it was a release for emotion because he's had such a tough time this year because, you know, he's so... Son is someone who really you know, he really takes it to heart. Like, he really... He's like the kind of heart... I've always seen him as, like, the emotional heartbeat of the team, Son. And when he's... Like, he really lives... He really, really lives his form. And you can... That's why he's so... He kind of glows when he's playing well, doesn't he? And then, obviously, this year, he's really, really struggled. He's He's only scored in two games before yesterday. So I wonder if it's a bit of an emotional release for him. I'm sure it's been a very emotionally challenging... Well, it has been a very emotionally challenging season for him. Well, I don't think he's you like the mask. Takes, the World Cup was in the middle of no, it. Where he's he got takes his form very personally. He yeah. went to the World Cup, and that was, you know, an emotional and physical drain as well. And I imagine he just wants to get back to, you know, the son of last season and the sort of five or six seasons before that and keep scoring goals. And finally on this, because I, got, I want to talk both about uh, Sol Campbell and Harry Kane, um, finally on on this, uh, Dan Juma, and of course, getting a goal on your debut, getting a goal to get yourself up and running um, is all brilliant. And I was pleased for him and I was pleased for Spurs because it happened, uh, but it was the anti-Son goal. It was absolutely scuffed in the opposite direction than he meant to do it. But still, getting it across the line is all that matters, really. Who was the last Spurs player to score on debut? So I was going to say Tanky and Dombele, and then um, producer Mike piped up and corrected me and pointed to Stephen Bergwijn, who of course scored on debut 2nd of February 2020, so coming up to three years ago, uh, when uh, Jose Mourinho's Tottenham beat Manchester City 2-0 at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Uh, that was just before COVID, a, f- a few months after Mourinho took over. Uh, so I don't, I don't think there's been anyone in the three years since then, although again, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure I'm missing someone obvious. Again, missing Charlie Ackleshare, who has this all this sort of stuff on instant instant recall. Yeah, he's, he becomes a better and better pundit the longer he's out, doesn't he? And so what you're saying there is that uh, 
The And it was an excellent goal that Bergwijn got against Manchester City. Just scoring on your debut doesn't mean it's all going to go well, but Dan Juma is off and running. I think it kind of shows what... I mean, that goal alone just shows what Dan Juma's there to do, which is that... Tottenham's bet, like the attacking options on Tottenham's bench recently have been rubbish. Like they've got, obviously, obviously that you know, they're, in a sense, they're in a lucky position. They've got Son, Kane, Richarlison, and Kulusevski. But Son's had a very difficult season. Kulusevski had that hamstring injury. Uh, Richarlison's had injuries of his own. Um, three of those four players went to the World Cup, which is a challenge in itself. So they really need, they definitely need an extra body. And they also need someone who can beat a man. There's no one, there's like, Tottenham don't really have anyone who can beat a man and produce a bit of magic in the final third. And so while I don't think Dan Juma is like a transformative signing, I don't think he's going to, I mean, I don't think he's going to start that many games between now and the rest of the season. Tottenham absolutely need someone who is good and talented and can make things happen in the final third and beat a man and score goals. And Dan Juma is exactly that. So uh, it kind of you know encapsulates the benefit he will bring to the team. We should uh, make the point that um, with uh, <clears throat> Arsenal and Liverpool uh, going out, um, I shouldn't say this because you know there is no natural justice, but when that Fabinho tackle wasn't punished, I was very pleased that Brighton got a winner. Not that he meant to hurt him, but you can't have that, that sort of thing going on in modern football. Um, the draw has opened up. Um, now, the draw is tonight. And, of course, the words you don't want to hear over the rustling of the balls is, and Manchester City will play, clickety-clickety-clickety-click, Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, obviously, it's one of those tournaments where you go, you play round after round after round to see when you get beaten by Manchester City. Um, but hopefully, I mean... Who would you most, in, Danny, who would you most and least like Tottenham to get? Well, obviously, uh, uh, you don't want to get drawn against Manchester City away from home at this stage. Um, as for who you most like, who who is left that Spurs can definitely beat at home? Okay, so the the weakest teams in it are who are through to the next round already. Stoke City from the Championship. Bad memories of games against Stoke over the years. Bristol City from the Championship. Uh, Leeds United from the Premier League. Then there's quite a few replay games. So Birmingham City, Blackburn Rovers is all Championship. Burnley against League One Ipswich Town is going to a replay. Luton Town against League Two Grimsby Town is going to a replay. Sheffield Wednesday against Fleetwood Town or League One, that's gone to replay as well. And then there's Wrexham against Sheffield United. It's gone to replay. Glamour tie, of course, if you get if you get Wrexham. So I think yeah, so I think Spurs probably want one of those kind of all football league uh, replay ties, don't they? Yeah, and the answer is um, you want to play home against Fleetwood Town because it, it, it would look to the uninitiated like you are beating Arsenal, wouldn't it? Let's move on then to what is now becoming an almost annual event where Sol Campbell um, does an interview for television, for radio, or in this case, for the press, uh, in, in, and it was in The Guardian, accompanied by one of those pictures where someone sits on a windowsill, um, looking soulful at the at the light outside, as though they are trapped in the place where they are and yearning for a, a more forgiving, wider world. And he was talking again, Sol, about the way he was treated when he left Spurs for Arsenal and the way he has continued to be shunned by Spurs fans. Among the quotes, it's almost as though people have forgotten how to be human uh, Sol Campbell said, wishing and hoping that somebody is going to die uh, and you're going to be having a party if I die. What world are we living in? He says, I know football has its tribalism, but if no one around feels that he, that this is unacceptable, well, we're in a really sorry state. This is a complicated one. Um, Jack, Sol Campbell, what he did was, 
you know, even by the standards of football, people thought at the time, well, this is just really odd, having clearly misled Spurs that he was going to sign a new contract, then misled them that he was going to go to Barcelona, and then eventually deciding, and it was for his footballing benefit, I don't know about the finances of it, I can't say about that, that he would go to Arsenal. Um, And he still seems genuinely surprised that people are so upset. Now, I will say, death threats, talking about having a party when he dies, totally unacceptable. Football's not that important. It can't be that important. Otherwise, your life is not is not full of the right kind of meanings. But I don't know. I don't know. Is it an attempt for him to to genuinely get past it, or I don't I don't know why he does this? Because Spurs fans are not going to say, "Oh, soul mate, that's all okay." Yeah, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. This whole topic. It's a really interesting interview with Dave Heiner in the Guardian. I would recommend people. Reading it, although I imagine that look, you know, some of our listeners probably wouldn't want to read it, and that's understandable too. I think ultimately it's it's very difficult to disagree with what Campbell says, which is that the continued singing about his death is really wrong. It's like it's really, really wrong to to to, to sing that. And of course I understand why football fans do, and it's you know a big part of being for football fans, the reason that they sing that, that kind of song is not so much that they literally mean the words they're singing. They do it because it's offensive. They do it because it feels kind of transgressive. And that and they do it because it pisses people off and it winds them up. And they get and and if you're a football fan, doing something which offends people is part of the fun. Like that's why people, you know, that's why fans of all clubs sing some of the songs they do. It's because the offensiveness is the point. So I kind of I feel like I kind of understand the impulse behind the singing of the song. Although I think that, you know, it's it's really bad to sing that particularly. And I think I think this is the point that Campbell kind of hints at in the interview is that it was a long time ago. Frankly, I think he's entitled to get on with his life and his family is entitled to get on with with their lives without having songs about his death being sung on television. I think he would help him if he came out and said, in the cold light of day, 20 years on, I can see what I did was was liable to cause tremendous offence to people because, and this is where the, you know, this is where the, the friction lies, I think, as well as the transgression, the transgressive behaviour you talked about. And that is that for football players, these clubs are important, but not everything. For football supporters, many of them, it is perhaps a lot, along with their family, the most important thing in their lives. And I think Sol trampled on something very important for people. And either he doesn't recognise how how badly that affected people or he doesn't want to apologise or even say, I made the mistake, because he doesn't think he did. And uh, this I can't see a way out of the cycle. I do think people should stop talking about him dying and stuff. I don't think that's right. Of course, it's wrong. But it's a... It's a it's amazing. I think he, he lacks a bit of self-awareness about this, in my humble opinion. I think we should end on a more happy note, really, um, because um, with the falling through, apparently, of the Pedro Porro transfer, um, despite the two wins against Fulham and Preston, this has been a slightly downbeat version but uh, of, of the view from the lane. I want to end, though. Um, we had hoped that today's um, edition of the podcast uh, Jack would be the one where we'd be announcing that Harry Kane not only equaled, had surpassed um, the record of the genius Jimmy Greaves, but he hasn't yet managed to do it because, of course, he was ill and, and seemed to be wrapped up in about eight anoraks at Deepdale. And so in anticipation of Harry finally breaking that record, and let's hope 
It's against um, Manchester City in the next fixture. Let's um, let's talk about Harry Kane's um, his first Premier League goal. Who remembers this? Benny Rose can hit them. So he has that in his repertoire. Low crossing. Kane. Harry Kane gives Tottenham the lead in his first ever Premier League start for Tottenham. Just as they did at the Stadium of Light in December, Spurs have come from one goal down to lead against Sunderland. Again, it was a lovely ball played in and a delicate touch by Harry Kane. A 5-1 victory for Spurs against Sunderland. Um, Harry looking very young with his buzz cut that he had, his crew cut um, that he had. I guess many of us would have been, wouldn't have not have known what this led to. I think I'm right in saying he, he also scored in his second and third starts um, in the Premier League. In his next two Premier League games. So this is when Tim Sherwood was giving him a run in, in the side in that sort of in the second half of the 13-14 season. So he scored his first Premier League goal when they beat Sunderland at home 5-1. Then Spurs went to West Bromwich Albion, drew 3 all, and Kane scored in that game. Uh, and then the week after that, Spurs beat Fulham at home 3-1, uh, in which Kane scored the second goal. And really it was that that little run, three goals in three Premier League games under Sherwood, that um, you know marked his card as being someone who was worth pursuing and not maybe somebody to loan out yet again in the sort of summer of 2014 when Pochettino took over. As the rest of that season went on, he was displaced in the team when Pochettino came in. Manuel Adebayo started to play again. Um, Kane played in the League Cup and in the in these um, in minor European games, but scored a lot of goals. You know, for a, a youngster coming into the team, and I was getting increasingly fed up. Um, with the uh, with the fact that Adebayo was starting ahead of Harry Kane, um, so much so that uh, I just looked it up. Actually, in November 2014, I hadn't yet fallen in love with Pochettino. I tweeted out saying, "I just can't understand what's going on here." Kane is obviously a better player than Adebayo, and his continued selection uh, has caused the Spurs manager to reflect. And there was a picture of a man wearing a dunce's hat um, sat in the corner of a room, obviously being punished for his stupidity. Oddly enough, seven days later. Um, I don't know if Potts was following me on Twitter in those days. Seven days later, um, Kane did come back into the team and he has never looked back since. Yeah, I should make the point, of course, that that goal at Sunderland wasn't his first goal for Spurs. Um, that in the middle of all those... Who was the manager when he scored his first goal for Ooh, Spurs? Oh, goodness. Go on, tell me. Harry Redknapp. December 2011, 4-0 win at Shamrock Rovers in the Europa League. Exactly that. And from a cross by, by Danny Rose. Now, this is a Tottenham team from another era. I mean, like, 2014 is a long time ago. This is a completely different team. Have a have a read of this. Carlo Cudicini, Eunice Kabul, Danny Rose, Benoit Asuakoto, Jake Livermore, Nico Crankjar, Sandro, Stephen Pienaar, Andros Townsend, Giovanni Dos Santos, Jermaine Defoe. That is, you know, I mean, we're, this is like, you know, we're looking deep back in through the midst oh, of we're, 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 That's like one of those stars that you see where then some scientist tells you that star stopped existing two billion years ago. Yeah, it was a, it, it was, um, a game hit in Dublin. Um, and you know, as you rightly say, he scored. But that should, not, that should not have been his first goal for Tottenham because in the previous game in that tournament, Spurs played Hearts. They won the first leg, I think, 5-0. So Redknapp put out a really youthful team against Hearts of Midlothian. Kane played up front, was brought down for a penalty, took the penalty and missed. 
And so we come full circle to the World Cup. And and what I would say actually about that that what you were talking about that that difficult time at the start of the 2014-15 season is that it's really worth remembering that it's not like Pochettino came straight in, played Kane, and Kane. I mean, because I think some people kind of that's like in the mythology, people think oh, Pochettino came straight in, played Harry Kane, and we never looked back. Whereas, as you say, like in reality, the first few months of that season were very difficult. Like you know, uh, Adebayor and Soldado were the first choice strikers. Kane was initially only playing in the cups, and um, I don't know if if people m- m- might have seen this, but in one of the columns that Mauricio Pochettino wrote for us during the during the course of the World Cup which I had the pleasure of ghosting he um he talked about how uh how difficult this was for Kane at the start and there was a particular moment after Spurs Spurs had a, a Europa League away game at Partizan Belgrade in September 2014 a 0-0 draw Kane wasn't very good and three days later they came back Premier League game at home to West Brom- Bromwich Albion Kane didn't even make the bench Kane was really pissed off about this and kind of demanded a meeting a few days later with Pochettino and his staff to say, why? I wasn't even on the bench against West Brom. What, what's that all about? And the background to this is that they nearly loaned Kane out for the 2014-15 season. And, you know, if they'd um, if they'd got Danny Welbeck, which they were trying to do, and oh, the only reason they didn't get signed Danny Welbeck is because Olivier Giroud broke his leg, so Arsenal signed Danny Welbeck instead, maybe they would have loaned, loaned Kane out. So Kane's position at the club at this point was incredibly precarious. Kane obviously rubbish against Partizan Belgrade, dropped against West Brom, demands this meeting with Pochettino. Pochettino explains to Kane what he needs to do better. He looks at his stats, look at, looks at videos, tells him where he needs to improve. All of this you can read in Pochettino's column, which I'm now plugging. And then it was only really, uh, he kind of came off the bench in that uh, League Cup game against Nottingham Forest at home, scored the luck, made a goal, I think, for somebody else, uh, scored himself, then scored again against Besiktas in the Europa League. And eventually, you know, and then over the course, has that hat-trick against Astras Tripolis, goes in goal. And it's only really over the course of October and November really that he forced his way back into the picture and then of course the Aston Villa free kick on the 2nd of November which that's the real kind of turning point it's not Pochettino's appointment it's a it's a gradual process after Pochettino's appointment which culminates in Villa Park's 2nd November 24th. Well I know it's not about me but I've just sent you in, the, in our WhatsApp group the tweet I did on the 2nd of November 14 berating Pochettino for continuing to pick Adebayo over Harry Kane. And that was the day. That was the day of the Aston Villa deflated free kick. One of the most famous goals. It, well, really one of the most important goals in the history, of, in the modern history of Tottenham Hotspur. And, you know, certainly one of the most important goals in Harry Kane's And one career. of the most important goals in the history of free kick taking, because he's taken everyone since. <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah, it's been great news for Harry Kane, great news for Tottenham Hotspur, but probably bad news for Tottenham's free kick scoring over the uh, over the, the nine years that the followed. The fact that they had Christian Eriksen on the, on the books for most of those nine years only makes it seem uh, a double crime yeah. against free... Kieran Trippier. Kick-taker. Kieran Trippier, very, very good point indeed. We look forward to the day when we can have the whole podcast dedicated to Kane breaking uh, Jimmy Greaves' record. Hopefully that will come very, very soon. I always tell the story here, Jack, and I'll end the podcast by saying this. Predicting things in football um, has a danger... Do you know the story of the Good Jonsson family? Ida Good Jonsson was a prodigy when he broke through in football in Iceland and was playing for the national team or was getting his national team at 18 years of age. His father was still in the Icelandic national team. And so we had the prospect of Ida Good Jonsson and his dad playing together for Iceland. I think the game was in Turkey. The Icelandic FA said, no, 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 no. 
This is far too important. We must have it as a home game. So they will make Ida will make his debut in the home game in Reykjavik um, in a couple of weeks' time. Ida Gudjonsson's father broke his leg in the game against Turkey, never played for Iceland again, and they never played together. So just be careful about predicting things in football and trying to manage events. Um, the gods of football do not allow um, such human interference. But I'm still pretty confident that Harry Kane is going to break Jimmy Greaves' record sometime soon. Listen, Jack, thank you for a sterling effort in your solo flight today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all for listening as well. And I, I have to remind you here that, of course, that you can augment um, the stupendous experience you're getting from this podcast by uh, subscribing to The Athletic. Get with the programme, people. Sign up now to read all of the in-depth Spurs coverage, even more in-depth than what we do on this podcast, you can believe that, um, from Jack himself and Tim Spears, as well as everything else on the site. It's a gigantic amount of football reportage uh, just go to theathletic.com forward slash spurs pod and sign up right now for just 1.99 a month for the first 12 months that's theathletic.com forward slash spurs pod thank you very much for listening we'll be back later in the week the athletic <laughs>